and I hope you get something out of this lead. And if you do, I'd be so happy, and if you don't, there'll be other people to listen to. <laughs> um, I was told I was supposed to open this with a prayer, and I'll tell you what I, th I thought about. I know so many great AA prayers, but I ended up, after having um, many years, uh, the years that I could have had children, I was drinking. So I ended up adopting a wonderful son who came to us kind of through a backdoor foster care. His mother had overdosed. And when he moved in with us, he was six, and uh, I knew um, that I wanted him to have some spiritual life. So I asked him, I gave him this little book of children's prayers, and I said, pick your favorite prayer out of this. And this is the one he picked, and I think you'll like it. So if you don't mind doing what you do when you pray, and here's the prayer called Broken Bits. Father, take all the broken bits of our lives, our broken promises, our broken friendships, our differences of opinions, our different backgrounds and shapes and sizes, and arrange them together, fitting them into each other to make something beautiful. Like an artist makes a stained glass window, make a design, your design, even when all we can see are the broken bits. So that comes from my son to you. Um, so I'm so happy to have this opportunity and really, I, I, the theme is really great. I've started, I was a teacher, an art teacher. I started thinking about at the turning point. And I read that, I think it's 59, and leads right into the 12 steps. And what I, I thought about this theme, and I thought, this, this idea to me represents, from my experience, so much of what has happened that led me to the program and keeps me refreshed in the program. So, um, it's deep in my spirituality. There have been times where I, you know, the aha moments. That's what I call a turning point. It's a really deep aha. So um, these so these uh, turning points that I'm going to share with you are what have kept me on this path, got me here, and they continue to happen. Okay. So this is what I thought about turning points. They're like a perfect storm of life situations. I mean, so much is happening to indicate you have to change. I mean, you know, you, you wake up and it's in your face. Something is wrong. You have to change. And um, it feels like for me the turning point is that when I come out of denial, I'm trying to be as honest as I possibly can to grow and change. And I think all of those turning points I'm going to describe here to you have are grace, grace, grace. And I have to also um, just laugh a little bit. Before we adopted my son, I had really left religion far behind. I did love nature. I completely thought that love, nature, and life, I could see it, even though a lot of it I was watching, felt like I was watching through a window. But then when my son came into my life, I thought, i got to give that kid something to rebel against, right? So I figured I had to take him to some spiritual path. But, of course, it led me to a spiritual path, which also grew so much because you have to have something bigger than you to stay sober. So here is a definition of grace that I heard on a television show, Joan of Arcadia. I'm not kidding. And when I heard it, I wrote it right down. This is about 10 years ago. The meaning of grace is a touch of truth that lets you see the world in a new way. It is a gift that can only be felt when you're open enough to accept it. I just love that definition. It just seems like everything we um, come to. And then along with grace... 
um, that seems like these words I'm going to read next, which are words that would make have made me run screaming out of a room 30 years ago, they seem to be what makes turning points more genuine and possible. And that's when you've bottomed out with something. You are willing to be as honest as you can. Even if you feel ashamed, you're still going to be honest. More experience, and then you even get it more. Like maybe you make the same mistake 500 more times ago. Really see it. Pain, the great educator. Truth. And then more time passing. So the thing I'm excited to say for me and why I'm feeling so grateful is even now, I've, gosh, I don't even want to say this. I've been 20 years doing this, okay? Being up 20 years this year. But last year I found out that one of my closest relatives is mentally ill and someone I'm really close to. There was, she was married to an alcoholic. Finding out about that mental illness, what's helped me? My program. I really bottomed out when I, when I learned this. But anyway, it just keeps happening is what I'm saying. More grace, more learning. So I'm going to go um, to the bedrock for me of what helped me with the turning point. So here's like the turning points, and then there's grace and the experiences that lead you to grace. But I don't think I could have done anything without learning how to trust. And I may cry here because my lack of trust was so great. I would say that that characteristic alone kept me in denial, kept me in my isolation, not trusting people. My feeling that I had to be entirely independent because there was not one thing that was going to help me in the end but me. I believed that with all my heart 30 years ago. Uh, I mean, if you were to say, do you trust me? I'd say, no. Are you crazy? Why would I? I had no trust or faith that anyone would follow through, that I was safe, that I really needed people. It was not going to happen for me. So my idea of a trusting higher power was even light years beyond just a little trust. I felt everything was up to me, and I was, as they say in the Bible, not to say I'm pushing any religion, but sore afraid. I felt sore, and I felt afraid. I really did. And I soothed that pain with alcohol. So I'm going to tell you about some turning points that led up to my sobriety, and um, I can see a higher power working in these moments. And this led me, of course, to putting down the mood-altering substance, alcohol that was absolutely destroying my soul. So a little background, and in this comes some turning points. Um, my parents were a combination of a ferocious alcoholic and a mentally ill person. Uh, they, We were great on the street. I love my Irish Catholic um, sponsor. She says, street angel, house devil. She said, that's something they say in Ireland a lot, like someone who looks fabulous to the world and come home and, and chokes you, literally. So we were street angels. When my dad was a coach, he was a deacon, he was president of the deacons. He, he just was the everyman, full scholarship athletic to Virginia Tech. My mother was president of the Junior League. He was president of Kiwanis. They were elders in the church. He was president of the women of the church. They were college educated. And then we go home. And we, I mean, really, I thought this is what everybody looked like. There were beatings, chokings, Christmas trees thrown across the living room, dishes for all the time, just all. And then we go outside and we do this. It was, I mean, really, I really did think everyone went home and just did this. And then they, you go, and then around other people, you were just fabulous. And um, 
I didn't even realize that it was, I mean, I knew I was afraid, and I knew there was something that felt like inconsistency, but I did actually think it was normal. And uh, there was so much drinking, and i got to say, there's drinking everywhere. Good Lord, go south. They like to drink, you know, mint juleps at 6 in the morning. So if anybody's an alcoholic, it's just like you just dive into that Southern culture. So I would say that uh, my home was terror and anxiety that was lavished in middle-class luxury. So it was just so confusing. I remember as a kid, I once said to my dad, why do we have everything and we are so unhappy? Because we had our health, but man. Okay, so we go to start going to counselors because my parents didn't want to be that way. So we start with our minister, Reverend Frank. And um, he was real close with my mother, and he saw us for five years. <laughs> he was trained in counseling, and he said, I need to meet with you alone when I was 15. And he said, I can't believe I have to say this to you. You need to leave. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't know what's wrong with your parents. He said, I love them both. But they are a sinking ship. You need to leave. And he said, you'll hate me for this, but one day you'll thank me. He said, if you can save your brother, do it. But if you can't, you need to jump. And I want to tell you, you could have pushed me over with a feather. I didn't even understand what he was saying. By the way, I want to tell you something interesting. We went to so many psychiatrists and counselors. We did not talk about alcoholism. I mean, half my dad's family's alcoholics, and he was an alcoholic. All my mother's family's alcoholics. But it was never about drinking. It was, we're really unhappy. We're mean to each other. We have dysfunction. That was what we were dysfunctional. It wasn't like, well, you know, maybe. No, there was never an inventory for drinking, ever. So I just think that's ironic. That, that I think we've come a long way. I think people see those issues now. Well, I packed that in my suitcase. Of, um, I'd say that was a turning point. It was one I didn't like. I, I want to tell you right now, I could cry about it, the feeling. I hated hearing that. But something in me also knew it was true. Something was really wrong. Um, later, I went through college in oblivion and was fortunate enough to um, have made a few good friends. And I got caught twice drunk driving and went, oh, I'm so sorry. And they put me in the car and sent me home. And I'm talking, I couldn't, st I mean, really how awful. I got out of the car and fell down. They said, you need to go home, little lady. Really? It probably would have been, really, I look back and think it would have been good for me to go on the drunk tank back then, but it didn't happen. So um, I made a really dear friend in college, and she's from Indiana. And after I got out of college, I went back home to Roanoke, Virginia, and I made another really good friend when I was teaching and working with children in foster care. And um, her name was Candace. Now, Candace, she grew up in the military. She was my most honest person I was ever around, another turning point. So I would sit there at night with my gown of white wine and my cigarettes, and I would puff away and drink. And she finally, after living with me for six months, she said, Bess, I love you so much, and I hate your drinking. And I said, what? She said, you disappeared. She said, you drink a gallon of wine three or four nights a week, and you, my best leads. And I, you're, it's like there's a shell there. You're not mean. You're, you're just drunk. And she said, you know what? I love you. And I'll still be your friend, but I do not want to be around you when you're drinking at all. Wow. I mean, it really shocked me. Packed that up. That was another turning point. I thought, could that be possible? Because, by the way, I was starting to figure out my dad was an alcoholic. And I was thinking, well, I know I, you've read the book. I'll, it'll never happen to me. I thought, I will never 
be an alcoholic. So that was like, well, okay, I'm drinking too much. But So then um, my parents had this um, outrageous divorce. It was, I mean, I'm not trying to do pity party here. It's, on, it's funny now. It was, the judge said, after 37 years of working the courts of Virginia, I have never seen anything like this in my courtroom. He said, I cannot wait for these Bohans and Calhouns to leave. I'm going to wash my hands of you. I hope I never see any of you again. That's what it was like, four days of fighting in the court. My mother lost everything. My dad's best friend, who had tried to molest me, and I yelled that out on the state. It was just like, no, the judge is over there going, Anyway, when I went, I went to visit my dear friend in Indiana, and her wonderful parents sat me down. They said, you know, I know your mom and dad, and they're good people, but something is wrong. He said, children shouldn't be drugged through the mud. For, and he, he said, move to, move to Indiana. It was like saying, move to paradise. He said, why don't you move to Indiana? And we can't give you money, but we will give you love and support. Third huge turning point. When I came here... Just getting out from under the stress of their whatever it was like two hooks were in my parents and they two meat hooks and they were pulling on each other and I love them both but their combination was fire and gasoline with alcohol and valium pulled up, poured all over it so I moved from Virginia to Indiana uh, I had met a dear sweet wonderful like this is my first Joe I talked about I'm married to a Joe and there was another Joe in my life I love Joes and he and I were going to get married and honest God he said I can't marry you because of your family. They're like Jerry Springer. And I had another counselor tell me that. She said, it's Jerry Springer in a really nice home. <laughs> anyway, my dear sweet Joe, that we were in love with each other, he said, I just can't marry into this family. He said, but I love you so much, I'll move you away from them. I'll move you away. So Joe helped me move the furniture, just as Joe L., and drove me to Indiana. And as we were moving this stuff from my house, my dad came out and tried to punch him out and fight with him. And he turned around and said, now listen, this is my future coming to. This is my, I, but what my dad did, I, I, later I was soon to be following in his footsteps. But my father was trying to hit my boyfriend. And he said, shame on you. Here's this wonderful daughter. You don't, do you not see that you pushed her away? And my dad started crying and ran the house and locked the door. So I really didn't see him for almost 10 years. And I moved to Indiana. I got a support, but... I'm an alcoholic, and my drinking was progressing. Um, I kept having bad relationships with mainly abusive or alcoholic men or friendships with very, very angry women, and I wasn't a victim. I was choosing what was familiar to, to me, and I was duking it out with them, too, in a way. You know, it's like it was like I would say that um, high anxiety – and not knowing if someone liked me was the glue that held me in intimate relationships. If you were smiling at me, I kind of think, what's wrong with him? Kind of like Woody Allen. What, why would I join a club that would have me as a member? But if you are the one person in the room that looked the other way, that is who I always went after. So it was me. And um, my drinking became center stage. And this was the thing that was very tricky. I did not drink during the week. I could go four or five days without a drop. So I'm not an alcoholic, see? But the minute I drank, I was almost a blackout. I was drinking more than a gallon and a half. If I drank liquor, it was like, you know, double scotches to 10. It was, but I didn't drink on Monday morning. I never missed a day of work. I made this really strict little rule list that I could go by so I could keep drinking, that I would think that I was not, 
that is exactly how my father drank. And when we would say, is there an issue with your drinking? He goes, no, I go to work. I never miss work. So there I was, um, lying to myself, and I had decided that I would never get married. I knew that my, I had genes that could hurt somebody. I bought a house. I, I taught school, and I went home by myself frequently and drank alone mainly. So another change for me was I was in a lot of pain, so I eked out to adult children of alcoholics. That was my first experience with anything about recovery. And that's where I've got a really clear picture of what happened in our family. ACLA's got its really good points. And I had no idea that alcoholism was a family disease, that everybody did, you know, the whole idea of, like, wanting to help the alcoholic so much you've completely lost your own soul and everything is dependent on them not drinking. And all. so I got a beautiful, I could write a story about my family, but I still, I wasn't an alcoholic. Although, I have to, you know, we got to laugh. Every single adult child alcoholic meeting I went to, there was a group of us that went af afterwards and got drunk together. And we would sit there drinking going, can you believe what Dad did? I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. When I think back on it, I go, talk about a paradox right in front of you. Anyway, so another turning point of pure honesty. And this one almost feels like, It isn't a light went on, but I guess it was that thing. I had, there were people in my life that loved me. I was feeling, I loved teaching, watching beautiful children every day create art. Dang, it doesn't get any better than that. So there were things, I couldn't stay in denial of it so much. So one night after uh, friends of mine got married and I sang at their wedding and then I got really drunk and sang like outrageous songs to them, which were like really inappropriate rugby songs. <laughs> I, was, I really should have been ashamed. I, I woke up in the night very ashamed. You don't, you don't sing that to people you care about. But what I felt was this pressure on my chest, was, which was probably something about alcohol poisoning. But this is what it felt like to me. It felt like the hand of God. I don't know why. It just felt like there was a hand going, wake up, wake up. And all of a sudden, I realized my father and myself, there was no difference in the behavior. I realized at that moment I was an alcoholic. And I was all alone. I mean, it was like there was just this energy of there you are, there you are. So, fear, distrust, fear. I just was, so, I was then even more afraid of myself. I called my friend Candace, who had said she'd never wanted to see me drinking, which I didn't drink in front of her. And I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. And she said, what are the meetings you can go to for that? And I was like, that means I'd have to be with other alcoholics. I didn't want to be with you guys. Little did I know later, it's the place I fit in the most. But So, uh, once again, I made this commitment that I wasn't going to get married. I uh, wasn't going to mess up children. And um, when I turned 40, and my friend Candace had gotten married to a man I loved dearly, and they're in Virginia. She uh, called me up, and she said, I love you so much, and I have so much hope for you in the future. She said, and she was a teacher and a part-time airline um, worker. She said, they've now changed it. You can take your friends on vacations, not just your close family. She said, I'll take you anywhere in the world you want to go. I, so we went on a trip, and she died on the trip. And she died in a horrific accident. It was horrific. And I, I wasn't drinking because I didn't drink with her. I'm not doing that just like a little grandiose, but at least I wasn't drinking. I mean, I really was so grateful I wasn't drinking. 
She was wounded seriously, especially a head injury, and she was in my arms, and she said to me, if you can even believe this, she said to me, you're going to be okay. She was dying. She said, you're going to be okay. And she said, uh, I'm going to go see my father, who is a general. She said, I know I am. I saw him the other night in a dream, and I've never dreamed of him. I mean, she's laying there. It was terrible. And she said, don't tell my mother that I'm glad to be dying because I can feel that I'm paralyzed from the neck down, and I just don't think I can cope with that. And that's how she died, with, with two young men from Israel who had came up to me. We were in a truck trying to get her to a, a hospital, and they, uh, they were 16 and 19, and they said, hey, we've seen so much in Israel. We're going to help you through this. She is dying. She will die on the way there, but we're not going to leave your side. It was really an incredible thing. It was incredible. And there was emotional pain there. I mean, I've been through pain. Nothing matched what that felt like. And I, I know anyone that's ever seen a person die, and veterans have seen ten times that, especially if you love someone. It's just, and, and it is unexpected. It's very traumatic. And um, I didn't stop drinking. I drank like I'd never drunk before. And it was that, it was another turning point. That was a turning point with her as she blessed me. But I couldn't give up the alcohol, and I knew I was killing myself. You know, you look in the mirror, and you can see the blood. She's swollen. You know, you know you're dying. And that whole thing where you go every day, you go, I'm not going to drink today. And I would drink more. I was so, I was so terrified. And I'm going to read you a couple of things I've read about pain. If you do not transform your pain, you will almost certainly transmit it. And I was transmitting it inward. Definitely. And then I love this quote, too. I don't know who said this. All great religion is about what you do with your pain. So I ended up having one of my drinking buddy girlfriends was really worried about me. She wasn't as big a drinker as me, but she was a, she was a pretty heavy drinker, too. And she said, look, I know a, la- a lady just moved in next door, and she goes to AA. I think you've got to see this woman. I don't know if any of y'all know Rosemary from Bloomington. She passed away in 2000, but she was an amazing part of the AA community. And she met with me, and she said, sweetie, you're going to die at 40 from this disease. So let me just look at this for a second. Um, Something kicked in slowly. Last week I was at a meeting, and someone talked about how honesty, openness, and willingness – and you know, you hear, don't you love it the way you hear old things in this program and they're new to you again because new meaning comes out of it? And I thought, gosh, you know, I have seen people that are mentally ill. Seriously, we've got a few people in this one group I'm in, and they are working a good program there because they can be honest. They, they have really sobered up because they can be honest. Um, I always could be honest and open. It was the willingness that was the hardest thing for me. So I go into AA with Rosemary's Blessing, and she sets me up with a gal who's like, you know, almost 20 years younger than me. I could be her mother. She was a really great recovered kid. And um, for the first six months, I drank. And I worked a program, and I didn't lie. So here's this little Leslie. I'm going, I love this program. I love these steps. She said, well, have you had a drink? I said, yes, I'm still drinking, but I love this. It was really... I said to her, I said, I think maybe I'll stop drinking. But I think this idea of being, having a higher power and admitting where you're wrong, I can do all of that. She said, you're supposed to do it and not be drinking. 
And I said, well, well, you just work with me. Now, she worked with me. for. We met every week. I went to three meetings a week. This is so manipulative, isn't it? And I said, I would even say to me, I'm still not done yet, but I'm glad I'm here. You know, I think I could have gone on forever. And finally, Leslie said to me, this isn't how a program is supposed to work. You're not supposed to be in AA and figure out that you can continue to drink heavily and work these steps. She said, um, so I'm really done with you. This was in about March. And she said, and this is only 26, and I was like 41 now at this point. She said, um, why don't you do this? Try not drinking for two weeks. See how much you think about drinking when you're not drinking. Ask yourself if you're an alcoholic and then deal with it. And then she said, <laughs> so I said, I can do that. So I went for two weeks without drinking, and I woke up in the morning. Drink, 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 drink. I could not believe it. Went to, I thought about it 24-7. I dreamed about it. I went, dang, I'm an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. I have to be willing to not drink now. And I'll tell you what, I don't know why. It was Easter Sunday in 1996. I had a half a glass of wine, and I made a toast to a religious figure that I totally cherish. I don't want to be a promoter here, but a lot of you know this figure. And I said, please help me stop drinking. Make this the last sip. And it was, why was it the last sip? I'll never understand. It was the last thing I ever drank in his name. I was being a little bit even uppity then. <laughs> but anyway, so all of those loving supports led me to that final turning point. I would never say it was that. It was all of that I told you. You know, the minister who told me, to leave and Vanille, I love your parents, all of them. So I'm just going to tell you some more turning points I've had in AA. For four years, I hated the St. Francis prayer. Hated it. Hated the part that said, understand more than understood. I wanted someone to understand me. I want someone to love me. So I'd say it like this. Understand me. I was like, oh. I thought, I love all the rest of it. And then I stopped even saying that line. So I'm sitting there across from one of my... I had three incredible sponsors, including the gal that couldn't come today, Diane Kay, who's now in Portland, Oregon. And I was saying, I just can't believe it. No one understands me. She said, tell me about it, sweetie. I said, I hate that St. Francis prayer. She said, well, what, tell me, what makes you feel I'm misunderstood? 45 minutes, I went, oh, my God, this woman is leaning across the table, practically rubbing my cheeks, trying so hard to understand me. I burst out laughing, and I realized there have been people trying to understand me in AA for four years. I wasn't, I couldn't see it even in the moment. And I said, Diane, are you trying to understand me? She said, of course I am. And I went, I've been missing for four years. So, my husband, who after being married, but I did get married, and after he was with me for a year, he said, you know, I'm so glad you're sober, because he's like, oh my God, what was she like when she drank? And he said, but it's kind of hard living with you. And I went, maybe you should go to Al-Anon. But I, he said, I don't want to go to Al-Anon. And his dad had been an alcoholic who stopped on his own. I mean, he was kind of like, my dad did, his dad, now he says he wishes his dad had gone to AA. But anyway, I said, just try it three times and see um, how it works for you. Dad, gummit, he tried it three times, loved it, and he says no to me all the time now. <laughs> And it did bring us closer together. He could set a boundary. He can set a boundary with me like that now. Oh, I'm going to go read a book. You go over there and obsess about that on your own, you know. 
Okay, then I couldn't conceive because I, I really did think grandiose that I also be Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and pop out twins because twins run in my family. So at 43, I start trying to have a family. That is like saying at 43, I grew wings and flew out of this room. It's really difficult to do. And there were people that would say, you know, if you pay me 50 grand, I'll guarantee in a pregnancy, not necessarily to a full delivery. My husband's going, why are we not adopting? This is insane. So I fought it and fought it and fought it for five years. And finally, when we went to adopt, and he's an artist and I'm an art teacher. I don't mean this. I mean, there are wonderful children adopted, but there were so many women who waited like me. It was a market. Chinese children were $30,000. Russian children were $25,000. We refinanced our house and got twelve and uh, extra. And we went to Catholic charities, and they went, the mothers aren't going to pick y'all because y'all old. <laughs> we were like, oh, my gosh. Now I'm weeping and wailing about that. And Joe said, there's got to be a solution. And then I saw a principal that I used to work for, and she said, have you ever considered adopting a foster child? And I said, oh, I work with foster children. So many of them are from alcoholic home and drug addicts. They're such damaged goods. As my husband goes, excuse me? <laughs> really? You, you and me? <laughs> if they came from us, they would have to be the same. I was like, oh. So we ended up getting a child at age six, and uh, he's now 19. And it's really been a wonderful thing. That was another turning point telling you to have that kid in. And he grew up with, he grew up with a lot of wonderful people that were all heavily addicted, and many of them have died, and their names are still in the newspaper. And we say this. Well, I see where I am. Am I good? Okay. Um, your mother gave you the gift of life. Your father gave you the gift of life. There's nothing else quite like it. And I, I wanted to kill his mother, and she was already dead, for what she did to her kid. But then I found out what a wonderful person she was. Truly funny, smart, and once she hit meth, she was a goner. So, it, you know, mercy, all of that, too. So, um, anyway, I think I'm just going to say one more thing about, um, and then tell y'all, I love this program. I really, I didn't know how to be a human being. My dad didn't, that's what I wanted to tell you. I wanted to tell you about my dad. This is intense. I wish there wasn't a tape going, but I'm going to let it rip. Okay, my dad, when he, my dad was a wonderful person, an street angel. People loved him, and I looked just like him. So when I go home to Roanoke, Virginia, and he was a big deal, they go, oh, it's Keith's daughter. And I go, yes. I mean, he beat, beat, joke, joke. I think, hmm. But his mother killed herself, and he blamed himself for that. And she was Baptist, so she was going to help me. His life, his father beat him. I mean, I know all this now. And when he was dying and he was in the VA hospital, he was, he was in there for about six months. I went to visit him twice. Oh, by the way, he stopped drinking, and I thought it was my letters. I had written some scathing letters once I got sober. Wasn't that nice? And he told him he should stop drinking, and he stopped drinking because he got so allergic to alcohol that food shot through his body within, like, he had severe diarrhea. So diarrhea saved my father, not me. Because the doctor said, if you drink, you will have to sit on the toilet because this is going to happen every time, Keith. He goes... And if you stop drinking, you might have six months, and he had 12 more years. And so anyway, but I was, he still was, he never went to AA, he was very defended, very righteous, very afraid. So when he was dying in the hospital, he called up everyone. He was scared he'd have going to hell, by the way, and made amends. And he didn't know about that, but he called, and everyone forgave him. I mean, he even called my mother and said, yes, I paid off. He did, he paid off her lawyer so she would lose, under the table. He tells her this as he's dying. She's like, 
maybe I'll get some money. I forgive you. <laughs> she wanted. But he, he, he turned to me, and he was sobbing. He said, Bess, I've, I've, um, I've made amends to everyone, and everyone has forgiven me, and I want to live. He goes, I want to live, and I'm going to die. Now, I'm going to be honest again. I wanted to jump up on the bed and slap him because he hurt my mother, and he hurt my brother, and he hurt me so much. But then I saw the human being, and I heard this. You all, don't do something you'll regret, because I wanted to slap him. And I thought, there's a sad, pathetic human being that's my pop. And he was sobbing, so I didn't hit him. And then he said, do you have anything to say to me? I said, well, I love you, Dad. And he really wanted more. I couldn't think of one thing. And I thought, wait a minute, I'll say what I say to my son. We love your mother. She gave you the gift of life. So I said, Dad... I love you, and you gave me the gift of life. And I am so glad I'm alive. And it's over. And really, I felt, I said, I really am, and I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. And then he said, do you really mean it? God bless him. That's how low it means. It was like, obviously, that's about, that's about it, right? He said, thank you from the bottom of my heart. for." And he sobbed. And I went, thank you for AA for keeping me decent in this moment. I'm being serious now. So he went on to wherever he goes after you die and it was something else I thought about it a lot because everything in me is really a fighter and to have the moment I probably wanted to fight the most of my life but at the same time I knew that I had to be loving and I'm so glad I was loving and that is what AA I think about that a lot I would never have done that without it without AA I'm a, I like to do this I like to go I really like doing this instead of going oh and I understood my father in that moment. So, I think this is the thing about a higher power. It is unimaginable restorative justice. The higher power does not love you if you change. The higher power loves you so that you can change. And I feel that I see people, I'm going to go to a meeting where a lot of people are having a hard time living on the street. And I know there's a chance for them to get better because the love is already there. They aren't bad. They just haven't found themselves yet. That's what AA has taught me. And that the true story of the miracle of AA is not picking up every single day, working the steps continuously, going to meetings where you will never be turned away. I love that so much. Sometimes I'll go in a meeting and think, no one is ever going to ask me to leave here. Unless I was really, no, we've even had mentally ill people. We go, please have a seat. Uh, keep reading the big book. Give it away because to keep it, you got to give it away, and your love will multiply infinitely if you use all this in the aspects of your life. I am seeing that more this year than I have ever. And then I saw this line by James Joyce, which I rejoice in. James Joyce. Mistakes are the portals of discovery. It's the AA has even taught me that. Make a mistake. You'll learn more. You're not a mistake. Make a mistake. It's a joyful thing. So God bless you all, or may you be blessed by the uh, God of your understanding. And that's all I have to share. Thank you.